Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Good morning. How is everyone doing? I'm getting used to the new layout now. I'm going to stretch my eyes around. It looks fantastic. So, for those of you who aren't familiar with my face, I'm Rachel, um, and I have a privilege of being a member here at King's. Um, I come here with my husband, Pete, and my two children, and I also have the great privilege of being part of the preaching team here, and I'm really, really excited today um, to bring this word that God's given me for you. So, we've been looking these last six to eight weeks at the book of Ephesians, and we've gone from beginning to end. And we've been focusing on particularly God's grand design that he has for his house and for his people. And in this book, we see Paul, the apostle, shares the incredible plan that God has for us in Christ, both as a church and also as individuals. Now, you could effectively break this book down into two sections. You see, in the first three chapters... Paul is reminding us of the gospel story, and he speaks of the covenant family, i.e. the time of Abraham, and he says how now, in Christ, anyone is welcomed into that family, because in Christ, we are all united. And then we see in chapters four to six, he sort of shifts up a gear, and he begins to challenge the reader. And he challenges us to how we can respond to the story of the gospel. And in particular, how we respond by the way that we live out our own story. And in these chapters, we see that Paul is focusing primarily on the everyday life of the church. And he's talking about how we might all be from different backgrounds, but we're all united in Christ. And he also speaks that we are meant to reveal who God is by the way that we treat one another. And so today, I've got the privilege of bringing the final instalment in this series, which is titled The Fight. And we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. So if you want to turn there with me, or if you'd like to follow along on the screen. So... Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. 
Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, my words may be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. And pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Shall we pray? Father, we just want to thank you for bringing each of us here today. We want to thank you that your Holy Spirit is here amongst us. And I just pray, Father, that as we read this very familiar, very famous passage, I just pray for fresh revelation, Father. Fresh revelation of who you are. And I pray, Father, in particular, that as I speak, I would honour you. And I pray that I would give your words that would empower and encourage and strengthen the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've always loved this passage. Oh, sorry, I just moved it as I spoke, sorry. Um, I've always loved this passage, and it's not just because of the incredible imagery that it conjures up in your mind, but actually as we delve deeper into the text, we find an awful lot of practical advice on how to protect ourselves against the schemes of the enemy. Because you see, in this passage, Paul is reminding us of the reality of spiritual evil. We must make no mistake, the enemy is real. And his sole purpose is to break up the unity within the family of God. And he will use any means necessary to steer us away. That might be through our relationships, that might be through our health, our work, you name it. He's always there like a prowling lion, ready to pounce the minute we lose our focus on the Lord. And you know, as I was preparing for this, um, for this talk and I was reading the passages and I was doing my research, um, I found such a connection with the word and with what the Lord was trying to say. And I actually found, you know what, we could probably do an entire series alone on these single 10 verses because it's so central to why Christ came. He came to overcome death. He came to overcome evil. And, you know, as we were singing, we sang Waymaker this morning and the words where we said, even when I can't see it, you're working. And that really jumped out at me because, you see, what the enemy likes, he likes to get you to focus on the results. He likes you to focus on what's happening and what's the impact. But actually what God's trying to work on is he's trying to work on your resolve. He's trying to work on your, your strength in him. And so with that in mind, when we look at this passage today, I was asking, you know, what can we as a church and as individuals do then to protect ourselves against his schemes? And basically, I felt to answer this, we need to break these 10 verses down. And to do that, I'd like to suggest to you that there are three main points that we can address, not only to find answers, but also hopefully practical ways in which we as a church can stand firm in the gospel and its message, and we can hold on tight to God's promises. So the three points that I want to suggest to you today are, number one, know who your enemy is. Number two, wear the correct armour. And finally, number three, use the weapon of prayer. So, number one, know who your enemy is. Now, I just thought I'd explain why I chose that icon. 
mainly because I didn't want to pick anything creepy and I didn't think it'd be appropriate and it wasn't going to be helpful. But I actually picked it as well because that's actually what the world thinks when you say the devil. They kind of think of this caricatured or this sort of picture, this image, and they basically think if, if we can picture him in our mind's eye, then we can probably just not worry about him. And that's, you know, that's what he loves. He actually loves this because he loves the fact that we can put him in a box and not think about him. But actually, you, we will find that he's a lot more crafty and a lot more um, clever than we sometimes give him credit for. Not that we should give him any credit, that said. So it says in verse 12, chapter 6, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I guess our first question really should be, why? Why does the enemy want to bring division and strife amongst the family of God? And as I pondered this, I thought, you know what, to begin to answer that, we need to go right back. We need to go right back to a time before the enemy was the enemy. Now, I'm sure most of us here are aware that Satan, before he became the aforementioned, was in fact an angel of the Lord. But he was no ordinary angel, though. He was, in fact, it's believed, one of the main ruling angels in heaven. And just by way of a bit of background, um, among those ruling angels, we had, for example, Gabriel. So he's the ruler and the defender of words. And then we have Michael. He's the warrior angel who fights to ensure that our prayers are answered. And then finally, we had Lucifer. And his role in heaven was, quite frankly, fascinating. Because you see, it is believed by most scholars that he ruled over worship. And his sole purpose was to conduct worship in heaven, and he was meant to be a conduit through which all the glory and all the praise was to go to the Lord. And in fact, in Ezekiel chapter 28, we come across what most scholars widely agree is a description of Lucifer. Now, when we look at this passage in Ezekiel, we see that he's addressing the, um, an evil king known as the ruler of Tyre. But actually what he is doing here is he's using him to depict or be compared to Satan. And as I said before, Lucifer was no ordinary angel. He was, in fact, actually beautiful. And he was bestowed, if you like, with all of the heavenly bling. So let, I just want to turn to that passage in Ezekiel chapter 28. And it's going to be from verses 11 to 17. And it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre, that's Satan here, and say to him, This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were a seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite, emerald, topaz, onyx and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for I so ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. 
Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and I made a spectacle of you before kings. And you see, when we read this, what jumps out at me is we see in the beginning just how loved and precious Lucifer was to God originally. And for me, I think that makes his portrayal all the more painful. But we no longer today associate this image with him. But what it reveals, I believe, is why he's so set on returning to his former glory. So where did it all go wrong for him then? Well, as I explained, he was believed to be the leader of worship in heaven, and he was meant to conduct that worship. It went wrong because he began to desire that worship for himself. Because he saw all the praises of the people that were meant to pass through him to God. But he began to feel, do you know what, this is too good to let this praise go by me. And he chose to keep that worship for himself. And actually, in fact, he committed the original sin of pride. Hence why we now have that expression, pride comes before the fall. So how then does us knowing our enemy and what he used to be and look like explain why he makes it his sole purpose to torment us? And while it's quite simple, really, the answer is because we took his job. You see, God didn't put a job advert out amongst the remaining angels for the role of worship leader. No, he looked to his most precious creation. That's you and that's me. And he gave us the role of worship. Now, Pastor Michael Todd of Transformation Church said, Worship is our love expressed to God as a response to his grace toward us. You see, unlike Lucifer, when we worship, as we did this morning, God gets all of the glory and we keep none of it for ourselves. Because you see, worship attracts God and it attacks pride. You see, God wants to be welcomed into our lives, into our situations and into our hearts. So if our worship attacks pride, this then gives us a really big clue into how the enemy operates in order to deflect or to stop our worship. You see, he plays on our own selfish desires and he makes us focus on these instead of surrendering them to God and praising him for his mercy in saving us through Jesus. He plays on our fear and our need to feel that we're in control. And as I said before, Satan, he wanted to be exalted above the Lord. So therefore, make no mistake, he's going to do everything and anything he can to stop you and me trusting, knowing, and praising God. So looking back at our passage in Ephesians, and it says in verse 12, when Paul highlights that our fight is not with flesh and blood, what Paul is pointing towards here is that the enemy is going to use us against one another to fulfill his schemes. Because you see, if we believe that our battle 
is with one another, then he can succeed. He can succeed in creating division and dissent amongst the ranks. Now, 11 years ago, um, I was studying at the College of Law, um, and a mentor of mine at the time, who was a Christian, um, came and sat with me uh, towards the end of my studies. Um, And as a parting gift, she gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, um, Letters from a Senior Devil to a Junior Devil. Now, if you haven't come across this book before, um, I would highly recommend it, uh, mainly because it's C.S. Lewis and I love his writing, but he puts such a clever and fascinating spin on the thought processes of the enemy. Because you see, the way he's done it is this whole book is written as if it's from the enemy's perspective. And in this, we see him following one junior devil as he gets his first patient. And what this book so cleverly depicts is how the enemy will use the everyday mundane things to trip us up. Um, And we see, for example, in one of the letters, the patient, that's the person who's been assigned to the junior devil, we see that he lives at home with his mother. Um, And the enemy advises the junior devil to make the patient focus on the little habits that they have that annoy one another. And I just wanted to read you one very short paragraph. And so it says, My dear Wormwood, I'm very pleased by what you tell me about this man's relationship with his mother, but you must press your advantage. The enemy, he's talking about God here, will be working from the centre outwards, gradually bringing more and more of the patient's conduct under the new standard, and he may even reach the behaviour of the old lady at any moment. You want to get in there first. Keep in close touch with our colleague, Dilbose, who is in charge of the mother, and build up between you in that house a good settled habit of mutual annoyance and daily pinpricks. And you see, the enemy's approach is very much the same with us. You know, he wants our thoughts to distract us and he wants to use those to lead us away from God's truth. And you see, Jesus himself, he wasn't even spared the enemy's schemes. And we see in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus was tempted in the desert by the devil. And I felt, you know, well, quite frankly, if the devil has the gall to take on the Son of God... You know, what makes us think then that this is not his plan or indeed tactic for our entire lives? But actually, as I was planning this part of my sermon, I found myself asking, but Lord, what about when we suffer genuine pain or hurt because of the actions of others? You know, how, how do we respond to this? You know, how do we cope with having to be the bigger person and move on? Or, flip it around, what about when we're the cause of someone else's pain? Or God, and God has to rebuke us. What then? So as I was asking the Lord about this, I felt he led me to Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. And this is where Jesus predicts his death for the first time. And Peter, not liking the sound of that, rebukes Jesus. And then in turn, Jesus rebukes Peter. And he says a very famous statement, familiar to many of us, which is, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And you know, it it struck me that as I was reading this again, that actually what Jesus is doing here is he is rebuking the spirit 
that is Satan, who is behind Peter's actions and not actually Peter himself. And so with that, I said, okay, Lord, what does that mean for us then? And I felt the Lord say that when we hurt one another, trust, first of all, the Lord knows and he is taking care of it. But we also need to recognize the spirit behind those actions because our fight is with the enemy and it's not with the person or the people through which he chooses to act. You see, we have to keep our minds on the Lord, not on the things of this world, because it's through worldly concerns that the enemy attacks. But if we keep our eyes on the Lord, we will always be able to stand against the enemy's schemes. So if the enemy is going to use the things of this world to trip us up, what can we then do to defend ourselves? Well, that moves us on to our second point for this morning, which is we need to wear the correct armour. So the first thing we need to acknowledge is that this fight, it's not our own, and we can't defeat the enemy by ourselves. And Paul makes this abundantly clear in the very first verse of today's passage, because he says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So I began to wonder, why does he say this at the outset? Why say, be strong? Well, what I believe Paul is pointing at here is that being strong is very different to acting strong. Because you see, we can paint a picture of strength for others to see, but underneath it all, we can be very far from it. But the good news is, is God calls us into authenticity in him. Because you see, we are made in his image. So that means his strength is innately in us. But the enemy is putting our focus on the things of this world and what the world says it means to be strong. So if we think about according to the world, how do we defend ourselves in the world? Well, the world might say, we can do this by becoming the hardest worker or perhaps the world's best mother, the best father, or perhaps that we are to surround ourselves with wealth and possessions because these are the things that will protect us and act as a cushion when the enemy may strike. Well, the Lord's answer is in fact not what the world expects because the Lord says, actually, your strength comes from accepting that you're weak. And this is highlighted by Paul in the fact that after saying, be strong in the Lord, he then goes on immediately to say, put on the full armour of God. So why? Well, that's because no matter how strong you are, you still have a weakness. What that weakness may be will be different and unique to every one of us. But I just want you to think for a moment the historical reason for armour. Armour is worn to protect the weak areas of the body. So when we look at the body of Christ, that's his church, that's you and that's me, what armour then can we wear to protect ourselves? Well, in today's passage, Paul has chosen the armour of a Roman soldier because as we know, he was in prison at the time that he wrote this and that's exactly what was in front of him and that kind of gave him the revelation for this part of the passage. But it also would have been instantly recognisable to the readers of Ephesians at the time. Because armour allowed soldiers to stand firm and to be prepared to enter battle. 
So as Christians then, we have to put on our heavenly armour so that we don't become vulnerable prey for the enemy. So let's have a look at the armour that we need. Firstly, in verse 14, Paul speaks of the belt of truth. Now the belt of truth, this is referring to the piece of armour that would have been absolutely essential to the soldier at the time because it would have gathered their tunic together and it also would have been where they held their sword. But for us as Christians, the belt represents truth. And it is only with the truth of the revelation of God in Christ that we can dispel the lies of the enemy. And also the truth sets us free. I've also read somewhere that some commentators have said the belt also represents integrity. So to defend ourselves, we're not to be deceitful with one another. Because that's what the enemy wants. And quite frankly, you're never going to beat him at his own game if you behave like him. And then also in verse 14, he moves on to the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the breastplate, this would have been the largest piece of armour. And it protected the soldier's vital organs. And it would have covered the whole of his front and the whole of his back. And here, Paul refers to the breastplate of righteousness, which can also mean justification. Because you see, we're justified by Christ's death on the cross. That you and I, we can't be righteous in our own right. But by the fact that our debt was paid by Christ on the cross, we can stand not condemned, but accepted before the Lord. Because you see, the enemy, he would have us believe that we're not worthy of God's love. And that we'll never be good enough. But we as his children, and as his church... We stand against that lie because we know that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not our own. And so actually we've got nothing to prove to God in his eyes. And then we move on in verses 15 to 16 to the boots and the shield. Now the boots, they would have allowed the soldier to have a solid stance and they would have equipped him for long marches. Well, Paul, when speaking of the boots, he refers here to being fitted with the gospel of peace. Now, what he's saying here is that when we hear the gospel and when we hear the good news, we're placed on the strongest footing. And you see, nothing upsets the enemy more than when we share the gospel with others. Because make no mistake, he fears the gospel and he fears its power to set people free. So quite frankly, I say stick it to him and share the good news of Jesus with others wherever you can and wherever you are because you will see the enemy retreat in their lives. And then in verse 16, Paul refers to the shield of faith, which is to extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. Now the arrows that he's talking about here are amongst many things, feelings of perhaps self-doubt, or false guilt that the enemy will try to attack us with. Does God really love me? Am I good enough? Can God really heal me? Are my prayers even effective? You see, the shield, this is our faith in God, and that he will protect us. And it says, in fact, in Proverbs 30, verse 5, God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. You see, our faith 
takes hold of the promises of God in, the, in, in times of depression and doubt. And this faith takes hold of the Lord's power. Um, I came across this picture a few, a few weeks back, um, and I actually have it as a screensaver on my phone because I just feel I need to keep being reminded of these things. You know, I am your strength. I will fight for you. I will always love you. These are just some of the promises that God has for each and every one of us. And then as we move on into verse 17, Paul speaks of the helmet of salvation. Now, the helmet of salvation is referring to the fact that we can defend ourselves by knowing that we're already saved. You know, we can stand confident that no matter what happens in our lifetime, we have full, not part, but full salvation in Christ. And we can hold our heads high with confidence because we know that we're already saved through Jesus. And the enemy will do anything to make you forget this or to doubt this. But stand firm because nothing, and I mean nothing the enemy will do, can overcome God's saving power. And then finally, we've got the sword of the spirit. Now, this was the only piece of armor that Paul referred to that was actually meant to be used for attacking as well as defending. Because the sword for us is the word of God. You see, when we face attack or temptation, we need to go to the word and we need to find our promises and our defense in God. And that's just what Jesus did when he was tempted by the devil in the the desert. He used scripture to fight him. And we need to use God's word to attack his schemes. And I felt really strongly that I wanted to say, you know, we must never be ashamed Never be ashamed to use the word of God in the situations that we face because you just don't know what power it may have over the life of a person that you're sharing it with. And, you know, the enemy will convince you, it's old, it's out of date, it's not going to be relevant to them. But actually, never be ashamed to use it. In fact, actually a few weeks ago, I I came across on social media um, a study that had been carried out in in the States by the Center for Bible Engagement. And in this, they actually, they just wanted to see how people were engaging with scripture. And so to do that, they polled 40,000 people aged between eight and 80. And what they discovered was fascinating because they found that when they were in the scripture one time a week, so like, for example, coming to church and the pastor says, open your Bibles, um, No reflection on the pastor at all, but it didn't have any impact. It was once a week. It was the same two times a week. And when it reached three times a week, there was a little bit of a blip, a little bit of a heartbeat going on. But the real amazing results kicked in when they found people were in the word four or more times a week. And this is just a few of the things that they found. So when they were in the word four or more times a week, feeling lonely dropped by 30%. Anger issues dropped by 32%. Bitterness in relationships dropped by 40%. Alcoholism dropped by 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant dropped by 60%. And viewing pornography dropped by 61%. They also found that sharing their faith jumped by up by over 200%. 
and discipling others jumped up by 230%. Just a few and quite staggering and really quite exciting stats there, but I shared that with you because I wanted to demonstrate that we cannot underestimate the power of God's word to work in the life of those around us and our own. But you know, the true revelation for me about this part of the passage is that even if you have a weakness, you've got to go to war. You see, the enemy, he would make you believe that your weaknesses disqualify you from the kingdom of God and his love. But actually, God says, I see your weaknesses and I love you. And I'm using those weaknesses for my glory. Now, I felt strongly that I wanted to say here, God is not saying that you should stay in your weaknesses. In fact, he's calling you out of them because he wants you to become stronger in him. But what he is saying is we have to give all of who we are to him. And that means our weaknesses as well. You see, he's given us this armor, but it's yours and it's mine responsibility to take it and actually put it on. And there's also one other vital weapon that we have that Paul refers to in the final part of our passage for today. And that's our third point. We need to use the weapon of prayer. So when Paul says in verse 18, and pray, you could be mistaken for thinking that he's put this in as a bit of an afterthought. Oh yes, don't forget to pray. But actually, in fact, by mentioning prayer at the end of the passage, Paul is highlighting how vital prayer is in defending ourselves. Because you see, prayer needs to cover all of our spiritual warfare. And we must never view it as a last resort. Now, I don't know how many times you've heard others say, or maybe you've even said yourself, I suppose all we can do now is pray. Or, we've tried everything else. Should we pray? You see, the enemy would have you believe that your prayers are ineffective and that they should always just be a last resort. See what the world can offer you first. But that is not the case. You see, prayer and the word of God are our two principal weapons that he has given us to fight. And most importantly, prayer is something we can all participate in. Does it matter your level of education? Does it matter how long you've been a Christian? So, in this passage, according to Paul, how do we use our prayers then? Well, in verse 18, he says we're to pray on all occasions. So, we need to pray both regularly and we need to pray constantly. Because you see, if you think about it, a weapon and our skill in wielding it can only become stronger and more efficient the more that we actually use it. You know, use it the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning. I remember my husband's grandmother said to me once that every morning when she wakes up, she just says, hello, Lord. You know, it's simple, but straight away her focus is on God. Um, And another thing that I wanted to share with you is a close friend of mine brought me a tea mug for my birthday a couple of years ago. And I love reading it because every time I look at it, I can't help but smile and do a little bit of a fist pump because it says, be the kind of woman that when your feet hit the floor each morning, the devil says, oh, crap, she's up. (laughs) You can insert person or man. I'm not being gender specific there, but I love that cup. 
And then we see in verse 18, Paul moves on with, we need to pray with all kinds of prayers and requests. So that tells us there is nothing too small or too big to bring before the Lord. He wants to hear all that you have to say, whether that's good, whether that's bad, or just plain weird. He wants to hear it. But the truth is, as most of us know, God already knows what we're going to say before we even say it. But you see, the key for God here is he wants our hearts, is he wants us to make him our priority. Because you see, when we put God before every single situation, not just the really big ones or the really intense ones, every single one. Like I had to take my daughter to ballet and I missed my timings. I was like, I'm going to be really late. There's going to be nowhere to park. Lord, can I have a parking space? Two, right near the front. And I was just, you know, very small, very simple, but never underestimate it, even with parking spaces. But you see, when we pray, that does mean that sometimes, occasionally, some attacks will still break through our defenses. But you see, when they do, that's when we need to pray and press in even more. Because we need to pray and we need to block out the enemy's lying voice in those times. And Paul also says that we are to always keep on praying. So to be effective soldiers, we need to stay alert and we need to be mindful of the enemy's attacks and to seek God for his wisdom when we sense an attack is either imminent or it's already happening. Now, before Christmas, we did a series um, about the type of church that God calls us to be. And um, I I, um, spoke in that series about the fact that we're meant to be a community church. Um, And I was speaking on the passage in Romans. And those of you who were here might remember, that's when I was coming off the back of a particularly nasty, chesty cough. And I was a bit nervous. And I could feel it getting tighter. And, um, And I had to take a minute and say, I'm sorry, I just need a minute. I said, God, I'm not, that's not happening today. That's not happening today. Um, but you were all so kind and so patient with me as I kind of went off the corner and kind of coughed it all out. But afterwards, some of you came up to me and said, oh, I really felt like I was praying, I was praying. And actually, one friend in particular shared an amazing testimony with me. They said that whilst I was preaching and they were kind of reflecting on what the Lord was saying to them, they looked up to the stage and they saw that two hands were tightly gripped around my throat. And they said, oh, is that you, Lord? And God said, no. And so they said, okay. And they prayed against it amongst others of you. And I didn't cough. I didn't falter. I didn't choke. Nothing. I was clearly spoken for the rest of my sermon. And I wanted to share that with you to encourage you because sometimes we can just look at that quite flippantly and think, oh, okay, that was good. But actually, that was the power of prayer. That was the power of prayer in that moment, because make no mistake, whenever anybody on the preaching team or anybody comes up with a word within the body of Christ, he, the enemy doesn't want us up here. He doesn't want us up here sharing this word because he fears it. And then finally, we see in verse 18 that Paul says we're to pray for all of the Lord's people. Because you see, the whole message of the book of Ephesians has been that we're all united in God's new society under Christ. And therefore, our prayers need to reflect the fact that we're all in this together. In fact, um, a few weeks back, the lovely Phil Brandom spoke on chapter 3. 
and he spoke on how Paul prayed for power and for love to be within the body of Christ. And it says in verses 17 to 18 of chapter 3, I pray that you, every single one of us, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people. You see, when we pray for one another, our starting point is and must be love for those that we pray for. Because you see, the enemy, he would love for us to pray with piety. So for example, dear Lord, please make so-and-so less difficult. Or dear Lord, please help them to be a bit more like me. But actually, in fact, Christ teaches us to pray with love. So he might say, dear Lord, please help them know that you love them. Show me, Father, how I can support them. Because you see, when we pray with and from love, it drives the enemy mad. Because what we're saying is less of me and more of you, Lord. And when we all pray like this, when we're all in it together, the enemy does not stand a chance. You see, the book of Ephesians is a book filled with love, it's filled with power, and it's filled with hope. And it speaks of the truth of who Jesus Christ is. See, he is the reason we're all free to come into the family of God. In fact, I actually, I heard a pastor refer to Jesus as radical. And when I stopped to really think about this, and I found myself looking back at parts of Christ's ministry, I found I looked at it with even more awe. Because when you look at the definition of radical, it says, to affect the fundamental nature of something. Because you see, Jesus didn't come just to spread love and peace. Although, of course, he did do that. He came fundamentally to change the way that we today and the people of Ephesus viewed their faith and viewed God. He came to challenge the hierarchy. He came to break down the walls that divided people. And ultimately, he came to set us free. He came to break any power the enemy would have us believe that he has. So when you choose to put on the full armour of God, you can know that Jesus stands with you. The radical life-changing, peace-giving, powerful Jesus. We can't deny that we're in a battle, but the truth is the battle is not ours. You see, it's the Lord's, and he's already won. We can take great joy and victory in that. He's already won, because he won the moment Christ spread his arms out on the cross. And so I guess, in closing, my prayer for each of us today would be the same as Paul's at the end of today's passage in verse 20. I pray that you, knowing that in Jesus you're loved, you're free, and we're all united, I pray that you will be able to declare the gospel fearlessly, as each of us should. Amen. Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.